WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and welcome to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, Managing Editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper. Uh, later on in the show, we're going to be uh, listening to an interview with uh, Brigadier General Michael C.H. McDaniel, who's the chairman of the Community Review Team that it still has an ongoing uh, review of the Board of Water and Light's handling of uh, the December ice storm. Uh, we're also going to be talking with uh, filmmaker and journalist uh, Cyr- Cyril Payen, uh, who is going to be at MSU this week uh, to showcase uh, his film, The Secret War in Laos. Uh, uh, City Pulse arts and culture editor Alan Ross uh, conducted that interview. Uh, we're also going to be talking with the state representative Mike Shirky, who's a Republican from Clark Lake, about uh, Sunshine Week and transparency uh, in government. Uh, but first up on the phone with us now uh, is uh, a journalist and uh, uh, HIV activist, Todd Haywood. Todd, thanks for being on the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So, uh, Todd, we uh, you, we have an op-ed from you in this week's issue of City Pulse in which you argue that uh, a, a lot of what we thought we knew from uh, the 80s uh, about the AIDS epidemic um, is is probably wrong, and we're going forward with with some misperceptions about the epidemic itself. But uh, so, sum up for listeners uh, what, what uh, the the three main uh, issues that you lay out uh, that that is uh, negatively affecting our ability to understand what's going on. Sure, I think the the first issue is the fact that there's this perception that everybody's using condoms, and that's just not true, and it hasn't been true since 1988 when we started measuring that. The second thing is is that the epidemic, despite what a, a, a gay activists want to say, is really disproportionately impacting men who have sex with men. And that includes gay, bisexual, uh, and other men who have sex with men, as well as transgender women. So we've actually made trans women invisible, and the epidemic with them is even worse than any other community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the third issue is, is that because we have this misperception about what HIV is and how infectious it is, it creates the stigma that's actually driving the epidemic and is, is encouraging people to zero sort, which is not an effective prevention technology. Mm-hmm. And, and what is zero sorting? I mean, what, what are these uh, miscon- misconceptions? Uh, well, there's a perception, first of all, that HIV is super infectious, that if somebody is HIV positive and gets naked with you, that somehow the virus jumps off their body and across the room like the alien implants uh, thing from Mm -hmm. the movie Alien, Mm -hmm. and um, that's just not accurate. Uh, The most um, likely probability of transmission is for the bottom or the receptive partner in anal sex, and that is only 0.5% per sexual episode. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people, when I talk to them, say that the probability of transmission is uh, as high as 100%, most say 50 to 90%, when in fact it's less than 1%. Wow. so there's a huge misperception about that. That uh, add on top of that, that we now have several studies that show that an HIV-positive person who is virally suppressed with medications is not capable of transmitting the virus. Hmm. So now we have somebody who's living with HIV is perceived to be this this disease vector, this this uh, you know typhoid Mary type, when in fact they can't even transmit the infection. So there's, there's a lot of misconceptions about how infectious the disease is. Um, serosorting is the process of determining that you will only engage in sexual behavior with somebody of a similar status of uh, HIV. So HIV positives with only HIV positives and HIV negatives with only HIV negatives. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that fails, particularly with men who have sex with men, is because we're not getting tested enough. Uh, CDC recommends uh, testing uh, every uh, three months for men who have sex with men, um, and it's just not happening. Uh, a lot of times you'll see men 
have sex with men advertising on various uh, websites that they were tested a year ago. Well, they've probably had three or four partners in between that and could likely be infected. In fact, 68% of new infections are happening in the context of primary sexual relationships. That's boyfriends and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like, you know, a lot of, of, lot of uh, these misconceptions uh, are, are still based on knowledge we were working off some 30 years ago uh, in the yeah. 80s. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely true. And it's, you know, I mean, it's still, there's still a zeitgeist in the popular mind about what HIV is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Sean Strube says it best when he says, you know, if you are uh, tested positive for HIV today, you have every reason to believe that you will live a, a normal lifespan, hmm. period. Mm-hmm. That is not the popular conception of what HIV infection looks like in modern America. We still perceive that if you have HIV, you're going to be dead in five or ten years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, you also touch on um, the fact that uh, here in Ingham County, where we are uh, ranked second just behind uh, Detroit um, in uh, HIV rates, what, why, why is that? Well, originally the thought was that we, we had a, a higher prevalency rate because of um, a, a blip in our transition for our residency, you know, under the census. Mm-hmm. But since this has been a consistent for about six years, I think it has more to do with the fact that we are not talking about HIV. Hmm. Um, you know, unfortunately, we just don't have the funding uh, in the county, either through our aid service organization, the Lansing Area AIDS Network, or through the uh, county itself to go out and do really big uh, prevention messaging and, and really have conversations in the community. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's uh, you know that's some of what you do as as part of your work. You, you're obviously out there trying to spread um, some of these facts that that we that we now know. What 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 are the types of audiences I guess that uh, you you encounter and and their you know level of understanding on this issue? Um, I've lectured at, at multiple universities and colleges in the state, and the the overall assessment is is that people have a construction of what HIV and AIDS is based on the 1980s or early 1990s. Hmm. Um, they think it's super infectious. They think it's deadly. And in fact, there's been some studies that have been done on Michigan's criminalization stuff that actually show that the courts are still perceiving somebody who's HIV positive as carrying a deadly weapon or being a de- you know, giving somebody a death sentence, um, which is just not accurate to the science. So, and it's hard to overcome 30 years of sort of social construction of of what this disease is. Um, The irony is is that more women died last year of cervical cancer than HIV. Hmm. And cervical cancer is caused by a virus, HPV, um, and we don't talk about that. In fact, men who have sex with men have a significantly higher risk for HPV-related anal cancers now. Um, and we're not talking about that. And the CDC just a couple of years ago approved Gardasil, the HPV vaccine, for men who have sex with men under the age of 26. Hmm. And the recommendation is that every man who has sex with men under the age of 26 be vaccinated, mm-hmm. period. And how, how prevalent is, H- is HIV compared to the overall population? You know, there are... The last time I had solid numbers, um, because for some reason the state has not been doing their quarterly reports, so this is uh, from January, there were just over 500 identified cases of HIV in Ingham County. Hmm. Um, About, if I remember correctly, just over 54% were in men who have sex with men. And and what are the the trends of the numbers that we're seeing, um, whether from, from the 80s, from the 90s? Um, well, it, one, the, the epidemic is definitely just decimating people of color, particularly uh, men who have sex with men of color. Mm. Um, and we see that here in Ingham County, just as we see it across the nation. The other thing is, is it's really impacting young people. In Ingham County, uh, 6% of our cases are in, identified in people ages 13 to 19. 14% of the cases are in people 20 to 24. And another 20% of the cases are in young people 25 to 29. 
Mm. So 40% of our cases are in people under the age of 30. Wow. Um, and that's, that tends to, to be shocking to people. Um, when I spoke with my, my HIV doctor um, just a couple of weeks ago, she noted that they're starting to see people as young as 10 and 11 developing wow. HIV hmm. in, in this it, county. Yeah. And in, in, in what are ways uh, in which it can be transmitted? Well, uh, HIV is transmitted through uh, blood-blood contact um, or through uh, contact with the sexual fluid. So that's vaginal fluid, uh, anal mucosa, and um, semen and, and pre-semen or pre-cum. Mm-hmm. Um, it also can be transmitted through breast milk from a, a woman to her baby. Okay. And uh, Todd, so you've been living with HIV since 2007. Um, for, for listeners, uh, what can you tell listeners about how it impacts your daily life, um, let, let alone, you know, sort of the long-term, you know, uh, implications I'm, I'm sure you've struggled with, but uh, on a day-to-day basis, what's what's it like? You know, I'm really lucky in that I caught my infection early, mm-hmm. so we were able to monitor, and as soon as we started showing some issues, I was able to start on medications. Mm-hmm. So I'm on some of the, the less potent meds. My virus is fully controlled. Um, I do have, because I still have not fully recovered my immune system, I still have some higher risk for infections. Um, so, you know, a sniffle sometimes makes you go, oh, my God, am I going to have pneumonia tomorrow? Hmm. Um, but in general, I'm just as healthy as most men who have sex with men. Um, you know, there are, I, I do have to do more monitoring, such as for uh, anal cancer, um, because as an HIV-positive man who has sex with men, I have a higher risk of developing HPV-related anal cancers. Um, but that's just part of the, the process, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, keeping yourself healthy. So on a day-to-day basis, there's not really a whole lot that has changed for me. I'm still, you know, I still work uh, between 15 and 18 hours a day. Um, I still keep going. Yeah. I mean, what, what more do you have to do? Right, yeah. Oh, so, uh, Todd, before we, uh, before we let you go, what sort of resources are out there uh, for for people dealing with HIV AIDS and and what uh, I guess suggestions do you have if they're interested uh, in learning about more? Um, I would definitely encourage folks if they want to know more about HIV to reach out to the Lansing Area AIDS Network or to the Ingham County Health Department. Uh, they actually uh, the health department actually has a sexually transmitted infection clinic, so you can be tested for everything. And remember, if you have other STIs, it increases the likelihood of uh, getting HIV. Uh, syphilis increases that transmission by two and a half times. So it's really important that you get tested for everything, not just HIV. Um, and I would encourage everybody to get tested for HIV. It's a very simple test. You'll know in 20 minutes what your HIV status is. And from there, you can have real conversations with experts about what you can do to reduce your risk um, for getting infected, and if you are positive, the big thing that people need to know is that it's not a death sentence. Mm-hmm. It's just like any other chronic manageable disease like diabetes. You can take care of it. It's that simple. All right. Well, Todd, unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, Todd Haywood, uh, he's an award-winning reporter. He's got an op-ed in today's City Pulse called Rethinking the HIV Epidemic. I encourage you to, to pick it up if you have a chance. Uh, but, Todd, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, Managing Editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper. Uh, next up on the phone with us is uh, State Representative uh, Mike Shirky. He's a Republican from from Clark Lake, and we're going to talk about an issue that he's been working on that actually has its own uh, week of celebration. It's called Sunshine Week, uh, and we're going to get into some issues about government transparency and Freedom of Information Act. Uh, but first, Representative, thanks for being on the program. Uh, you're, thank you, Randy. I appreciate you having me on. All right. So uh, take us back to when you first got involved uh, with issues uh, related to the Freedom of Information Act, how the public can 
access information. And uh, I understand one particular uh, angle you're taking on this is is the sort of cost barriers um, that people or media organizations have faced when uh, they simply want to get some public information. Well, uh, when I first ran for office and began to interact uh, more closely with the public, uh, it became apparent to me that that uh, there is some what I call economic and bureaucratic stonewalling occurring related to the Freedom of Information Act. And what I mean by that is locals, not all, as a matter of fact, not even a majority of small minority, uh, but yet a significant minority, uh, had, cre- had figured out ways to creatively basically stonewall FOIA requests by either putting them bureaucratically out of reach or putting them financially out of reach. Mm-hmm. So then I got into it further and discovered that there's really uh, wasn't any standardization any what I call best practices being um, encouraged uh, across the uh, state uh, for local government and uh, providing access to citizens. And so uh, we we submitted this bill, the very first bill, 4001, in January of 2013, and been working on it since then, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with uh, locals, to make sure that we're listening to their concerns uh, while not compromising citizens' access to what it, what it really is, their information. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's really about standardization in, in influencing and imparting best practices and encouraging uh, more and more information to be put online and accessible so that people don't have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about standardization, do you mean costs? Costs and policies. So, for instance, uh, if a uh, even though the law says each organization, each governor entity has to have a FOIA uh, policy, uh, under this law, in the, under this uh, modernization of the FOIA Act, uh, if they do not have a policy and cannot give that policy to a requester in writing for free, then they cannot charge for any FOIA requests. Hmm. And so that establishes a more, there's some consequence then to not having a policy. The next level is uh, uh, some standardization with how quotations or estimates are created uh, as a result of a FOIA request. And so we we use the DTMBs, uh, they basically have a quotation sheet that they use for all FOIA requests, and we're using it as an example, and we're just simply saying all organizations, all government agencies have to create their own format. We're not prescribing how, but they have to create a format so that they, when somebody has a, a Freedom of Information Act request, uh, they get an estimate, and it delineates materials, uh, labor by different types of labor, mm-hmm. uh, and, and quotes them uh, by line items so that it's no longer a roll-up number that is hard to argue with because, uh, you know, if somebody says, well, it's going to be 2500 bucks and there's no details, so you don't have any to argue with. So sure. uh, that's the premise uh, behind it. We also fix the cost of a 8.5 by 11 sheet to $0.10, cents, uh, and, and we added a, an inflation factor to it, but that does not cover labor. And actual labor costs are included, uh, not including burden or overhead or, or benefits, in other words. Okay. We believe that uh, that's that in, in very few cases, um, let's just pretend for a moment that the FOIA law were repealed and there was no, no FOIA law. Uh, I seriously doubt that any uh, government agency would actually lay anybody off. Therefore, those costs are already uh, buried into their uh, operations. Yeah. And, and to sort of sum up for for our listeners, I think uh, we could give an example. Um, you know, if if City Pulse was to ask for certain records from the city of East Lansing uh, and also the city of Lansing, we might get billed fifty cents a page by the city of Lansing and X number of labor hours, and a different cost structure might come up uh, in East Lansing, and, and one side maybe. Um, you know, disproportionately or, or more cost prohibitive than the other. Um, so, so Representative Shirky, are, are you looking at other states um, as a model for what you're trying to do here? We did we did some cherry picking of some other states, uh, but really, this is you know, my I'm, my background is engineering, and uh, so this is just basically putting some common sense uh, logic to the pro- basically defining a process more clearly, so that there's less latitude. We also provide some protections for uh, locals too. If the FOIA request isn't clear that it's a FOIA request, uh, then they have no legal exposure if they fail to, to uh, fulfill it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think people who are making those requests have a responsibility to make it clear and not hide it, uh, just for the purpose of trying to catch somebody, you know, in the future. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also um, uh, put there in a stipulation, I think it's, a, it's an equal protection uh, stipulation, that if somebody's making a request, or they're a frequent flyer, for instance, and they don't pick up and pay for past requests, then the next one, uh, the government agency can require 100% payment in advance. And so that, that kind of gives a nice little attention uh, so nobody can abuse the system. And uh, so I think we've, we've done a pretty good job of listening both to uh, citizens and their concerns about the uh, stonewalling that has occurred in the limited cases, and we've also listened to locals to make sure we've con- made sure that we've not created more exposure for them, nor added additional costs. Mm-hmm. And in, in this work, have you come across um, maybe any unforeseen uh, issues that have, have arisen? Or what comes to mind is uh, are the courts, and when they get involved with this and you start dealing with uh, juvenile records or uh, get involved with mental health courts, are these issues that have come forward since you started working on this? No, uh, we haven't actually. This, this, the entire process of working on this bill uh, we really haven't gotten into a specific FOIA request of their content. Again, we've pro- we focused on the process, mm-hmm. and so uh, there's other there's other modernizations or updates in the FOIA laws that uh, are are you know are worthy of consideration, like what you just kind of alluded to, but. They weren't, they weren't part of the intent of this legislation. Okay. All right. Well, um, as, as if you've been following this issue, you also note that it's uh, very much bipartisan. Uh, Republicans yeah. and, and Democrats are lining up behind this. Uh, Representative Shirky, wh- how would you grade uh, Governor Snyder's track record on transparency? Uh, I think his track record has been pretty good. Uh, I haven't seen any specific evidences where he's, you know, he's been, uh, where I could accuse him of any economic or bureaucratic stonewalling. Uh, there are always gray areas that we may, he and I may either agree or disagree on, but for the most part, I think he's, he ran as a transparent guy, and I think he's been, he's trying hard to do that, as evidenced by all the dashboards and reports that he's, you know, been encouraging and requiring. So, uh, the 4001 is on the House floor today, and I expect to have a vote here in about 20 minutes. Uh-huh. So, all right. Well, uh, we are we are about out of time, but uh, right. I, I will let you go uh, back back to work and uh, wish you a happy Sunshine Week. Thank you very much, Jim. All Take right. Care. Take care. You're listening to Impact Exposure on. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, Managing Editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper. Uh, next up, uh, we have an interview with uh, uh, French filmmaker and journalist Cyril uh, Payen. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, he's going to be in town uh, this week uh, to present... Uh, his film, The Secret War of Laos, in which he explores the, pl- the plight of the Hmong people um, who are, uh, have, have a rich history uh, in Southeast Asia but have uh, been entangled culturally uh, both in France and, and here in the States. Uh, that event is tomorrow, Thursday, March 20th from 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, at the Kellogg Center. Uh, and uh, if you want more information on that, you can pick up this week's uh, issue of City Pulse. But uh, Arts and Cu- City Pulse Ar- Arts and Culture editor Alan Ross conducted that interview. Let's listen to that now. Uh, Cyril, can you tell me a little bit about the movie and what inspired it? This is the, the, the story of a tribe called the Monk, uh, where who would have been still living in, the, in remote jungle, mountainous jungles of, uh, of Laos, uh, and these tribes were, 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 which nobody actually uh, have, have seen, um, they were supposed to be, um, to be uh, former Secret War CIA foot soldiers used by the, the American Army during Vietnam War. So I, I started to, to work on this issue, to investigate on this uh, issue. It's, uh, it's extremely difficult to work on this kind of stories in, uh, in Asia because it's, it's taboo. At this time, we were at the end of the 1990s. Um, Laos was a landlocked communist country, quite, uh, quite uh, remote and, uh, and not very open to, to anything. And, and moreover, uh, when we started to try to locate this uh, monk, uh, former guerrillas, uh, 
foreigners still living in the jungles. It seems that they were in the of limit to any foreigners, of limit to anyone, uh, military special, special zone in the highest mountains of northern Laos, so it's quite a difficult journey to, to make any attempt to, to go there. So it's what we did, it's what we did anyway after one or two years of investigating or, 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 or of preparations to go to go there. A very difficult journey through landmines, trying to evade uh, the, 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 the army patrols because it's a, it's a military zone there, and uh, walking by, by, by nights, trying to hide by, by days, it was extremely difficult. Any uh, very, very, very difficult journey, and 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 finally we we we, we get we get to them. We found hundreds of uh, exhausted, uh, desperate people, and I can tell you that seeing this uh, man trying to speak some French because they were trained by French, they rescued French uh, soldiers. Uh, seeing these men uh, begging for assistance to America and and still wearing the American uh, Army uniform 35 years after the end of the war and still carrying uh, some so old uh, rifle with one or two bullets left was really um, uh, an amazing an amazing um, and unforgettable moment for me. And uh, moreover, when you walk in a jungle in this uh, area in 2005 and you see uh, some children, wounded children, uh, young girls raped by the army and people injured, very badly injured with no medicines, nothing. I've seen some children who were 10 years old and they, they didn't know what was the taste of rice, which in, in Asia it's, uh, it's uh, really an outrage. And, uh, and they, some of them didn't even knew, knew what was a, a car. So this is with this um, monk tribe that we stayed for a few days and uh, we escaped and make make it made it out of uh, of uh, Laos with the, the film and the equipment, uh, trying to help them, trying to 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 have the the world to take care of them because uh, they were begging for assistance because they said basically we we were on the side of the French during the first uh, in the Chinese War, the first uh, Vietnam War from the 1945 to. Uh, 1955, and then we worked extensively with the American forces, and now we are left behind. We are here, and nobody is helping us. So it was uh, quite, uh, quite uh, a moment of despair. So that's why we decided to do the film. Tell me a little bit about the duty to remember. Yeah, this is the part which is uh, in the investigation, which was, which was uh, a bit, um, a bit of a duty for me because. Uh, by coincidence, if we, we think there is uh, there are coincidences, um, the story of the monk of this uh, 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 black wearing uh, uh, people living in the highest mountains of East Asia, the border of Laos, Vietnam, China, people who think they descend from the the ice ages, they have long ancestral stories. Uh, these people were um, actually trained and embarked into the French war by my own grandfather. My own grandfather was a, uh, an, a French army commando who, uh, at the age of 22, was parachuted in Laos in the mountains uh, when the, the war against Japanese and the decolonization process and the, the liberation war were starting to, uh, to light a bit everywhere after Russia and China. And uh, he was the one of the one uh, young officer who had the idea to recruit local uh, what we call at this time militias, local uh, tribes, uh, and then he just selected and the Hmong were volunteering because the Hmong have been always, um, always uh, uh, unliked by the, the local people because they are extremely, uh, uh, they, 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 like, they like to stick alone. They have their own customs, their own marriage, they, this is the way they are, and they have been like this for thousands of, hundreds of years, and they are not really liked by the, the, the community in the places they live. So the monk saw the the French, the, the Westerner, as a, a way to to, to maybe uh, have some help too in 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 return in return from the their the help. But the their loyalty, their their braveness in the fighting, uh, the way they really re rescue French French soldiers and and later uh, so many many. Uh, American uh, army servicemen or CIA uh, operatives in Laos uh, was ex very much beyond uh, anybody would expect. And this is uh, how my personal life uh, 
still fear in this uh, investigation. It's like my grandfather left after the, the retreat of the French in 1954, before he became a diplomat. And I knew that even when during I was a child he was talking about the war, and his memory was very much stick, stuck to uh, these people he had engaged in the, in the war, and he knew uh, France had for some abundance. The thing is, uh, for the, the Hmong, they have been uh, uh, abandoned, uh, like a treason uh, by the by the French because they have been left behind after so much work with them, and uh, the American went on by using them massively, the same kind of recruitment, but more massive, more people involved in this uh, in secret operation in Laos, which is most probably one of the most important secret uh, operations uh, outside of the of the country for for America, and. And the very same tragedy happened again. It seems that uh, many of them have been left behind with no way out, no rescue, no help, apart from um, a few people who were just trying to, to raise the, uh, in the Hmong community in France or in the Hmong community here in Michigan or in America, in California, trying to, to, to have some help from the Congress, to have some help from, from anyone, the UN or anyone who could, could, could help. But it was like these people who have been helping so much um, I've just uh, I've just chosen the the wrong side of the war. They have been with the one who have been defeated, the French, then the American, and uh, it seems that everybody wanted to forget that and to forget them too. And so it was a um, like a, a transgenerational, probably a transgeneration uh, 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 kind of duty that I I inherited from my grandfather, I guess that I, I really had to come back to try to find them and try to help them. Uh, tell me a little bit about the Hmong. It's very ancestral. It's a very ancestral culture. The Hmong are, are really uh, sticking to their culture, to their customs. And, and, uh, and honestly, they are, they are very being uh, uh, put apart in, uh, in Asia, wherever I've seen them working. They work so hard, much more. Uh, harder than any more any other uh, people living in the land in Southeast Asia. Very stick to to their customs. They really like to stay together, not to mix though so much. And this is, I think, not to their advantage because uh, it's not widely appreciated by governments. It's not really appreciated by other tribes uh, because people tend to prefer when you mix and you are you are more more friendly. It's something which is extremely priceless. Uh, but to others, and especially in governments, uh, in, in countries where governments tend to control everything, control the population, control the way you're going, uh, the way you live, the way you even uh, act, dress, or eat, uh, the Hmong are really a target. You hope to get out of this panel on Thursday? Well, I'm going to try to to, to explain the, how we... we like a reporter as, my, as myself, grabbing news, news in Southeast Asia is uh, working, uh, work, and not only having the, 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 the history that you know, the official, official version, for example, of, of uh, what people uh, tend to, to remember or what uh, governments want to, wants to say. So this is why I'm, I'm, I'm uh, not welcome in many countries. I've been blacklisted in Burma, in in Laos for many years. Uh, I, mean, I can't go anymore in China now because I, I went clandestinely to Tibet um, a few months ago. Uh, but this is the, the panel is to explain that uh, sometimes you have to, to get the truth, and this is how journalism it could be uh, uh, quite helpful, I, I guess. Uh, you have to be subversive, you have to be clandestine in order to get the, the truth, and the more uh, you get uh, close to the, the truth, uh, the more you, you, you do your job. So this is basically what I'm going to, to explain. And the panel is extremely interesting because we share the academic way of working of, uh, of gentlemen and ladies here uh, in the MSU. And uh, we try to confront it to, to my work too, which is very much on the field. Uh, so I think it's quite an experience and I'm looking forward to, to sharing it. You're listening to Impact Exposure.
And that's our interview with uh, filmmaker and journalist uh, Cyril Payel, uh, who's going to be uh, in East Lansing tomorrow. That's Thursday, March 20th from 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, to talk about his film about the plight of the Hmong people. Uh, you're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, managing editor of Lansing's alternative weekly newspaper, filling in for editor uh, Burl Schwartz tonight. Uh, let's turn now to a, uh interview from our TV show that aired over the weekend uh, with Brigadier General Michael C. H. McDaniel. He's the chairman of the Board of Water and Light uh, Community Review Team that's conducting an outside investigation into the utilities uh, handling of uh, the December ice storm. Let's listen to that now. This is City Pulse Newsmakers, a weekly look at the issues and the people behind them in Greater Lansing. Brought to you by City Pulse, Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper. And now, here's your host, editor and publisher, Burl Schwartz. Good morning. Our guest today is Brigadier General Michael C.H. McDaniel. He chairs that uh, committee that Mayor Bernero asked him to set up to review the performance of the Lansing Board of Water and Light after that uh, December 21st, 22nd ice storm knocked people's power off for as long as 12 days. Uh, General McDaniel, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. Great to be back. Thank you. And uh, Mickey Hurton, associate publisher of City Pulses, here as well. Uh, In your day job, you teach at Cooley Law School, so you're used to grading people. How about grading, uh, not their performance, unless you want to, but uh, their, uh, during the power outage, but their performance uh, during this review process? I, I'm smiling, Burl, because my wife had suggested as we write this report that we should do it, we should <laughs> provide them a grade yeah. from the different <laughs> pieces. And, and, and so I was, I've been struggling with how to do that and do it objectively to tie those grades to it. Uh, but I thought their performance overall, I would, uh, I would probably give it around a B plus. I, I think they were well prepared. Uh, they knew all the areas that, that they expected us to, to ask them about. Uh, I, I, to some degree, I, I disagree with some of their answers. But in terms, but your question was asked to their performance, so I would give them a good grade for their performance. Well, what about their answers? What? Uh... Well, I. Yeah, as soon as I said that, I knew I was probably going to start getting sort of sucked into areas that we're not really ready to discuss yet. Uh, we haven't had an opportunity to meet as a group since the Monday meeting. You know, I'd like to, to sort of have a meeting with my team and say, okay, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, and we haven't had an, uh, uh, the ability to do that yet. Everybody, of course, is, as you know, has a day job and is trying to work this in as a volunteer. Uh, but some of the areas, I think, they had very thorough answers, and some of the answers were not quite as complete. Uh, and some of them may have been complete, but I don't think that they truly addressed the problem. And, and I'm, I'm still sort of going through those different areas mm-hmm. and saying, okay, now, what, you know, we need to analyze this. What does this really mean about their, their corporate response, their corporate culture, uh, and, and whether there needs to be... Uh, sort of a focus on that as opposed to here's the things they did and here's what we think about the things that they've done. Any surprises so far? Um, I, I think that there is a, I, I wouldn't say that there's a surprise, but I, th- but I think there is a true sensitivity now to uh, the public response. Uh, I, I think that there... Uh, well, the one thing in terms of the tone of their response is uh, this was a worst-case scenario. This was a 40% outage. No other public utility has ever experienced a 40% outage. Uh, so we did a pretty good job considering, but we didn't communicate well with the public. Before I uh, turn things over to Mickey, yeah, is that because they say no other utilities ever uh, sustained uh, that much outage, or is, is that something objective? I think that's pretty objective. I mean, I've, I've looked at some. I haven't done all my homework yet, but I have done some review, some research of other public utilities that have experienced ice storms, and that 40% is actually pretty high. Now, the, the, But the question, of course, is, and when I said we still need to do the analysis, does the 40% matter? 
I mean, is that is is it the percentage of the total yeah. customers we should be looking at, or is it the total amount of customers as opposed to the percentage, or is it per number of crews per lines down or number of crews per customers that are that are without power? So I'm not sure if the percentage really matters. Uh, I mean, I tried to have that debate a little bit in the questioning and said, well, you know, MPSC says for re reliability standards, a 10% outage is a catastrophe. Do, and whether they considered that to be a catastrophe. And the answer really was no, that a 10% outage is not necessarily a catastrophe because it could be caused by any number of, 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 of uh, uh, conditions or, 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 or contingencies could cause that outage. So it was more a discussion then of, well, what sort of would constitute a, uh, a catastrophe? And it was more a, a discussion then of the length of the outage itself, the duration uh, of the period prior to restoration, which is kind of, when you think about it, a catch-22 because they control yeah. to some degree the, the, the amount of time for which there will be an outage. So are you self-creating the, the catastrophe, as you've defined it, uh, if you define it by the duration? So again, uh, these are, uh, if anything, observations of what we saw on Monday it should not be uh, considered to be our, our committee's uh, thought processes or, or going towards recommendations. It's more my observations of what we saw and how we sort of have to now think, Burl, about what we're going to do next and how we sort of analyze this very large set of data that we have. <laughs> it is a large set of data. I went home. I, you've got those two thick books. Right. And I'm, they're, they're falling all over the place with me. I weighed them. Right. It was 11 pounds. Yeah. And that's only a, that's only a share yeah. of the stuff you've gotten. The, what surprised me at the hearing on Monday was that they had their outage management system and they knew it didn't work. And you may have brought it up, too, when you said, well, okay, you know this one didn't work. Did you keep the backup? Did you keep the old one going? And the rest sort of glibly said, nah, we got rid of that. And that, that struck me as very odd. I mean, this, these weren't just a couple of blips on this system. I mean, they'd been going back and forth with GE and trying to resolve it. And the way I put it in the piece I wrote, I said they gambled and they lost. And so that surprised me. The other surprise I had was how quickly they've been able to address a number of issues that were raised. New crews, relationships, which I do think is, a, is a, an odd issue, and the other, the communications plans. And it sort of says, well, geez, if a little more attention to the, you know, to the game, maybe we would have taken care of these things before, especially when you know your management system doesn't work. So that was, I mean, they were my surprise. The management system, you, I mean, you asked the question, I think, about right. a backup. Uh, again, um, the issue to me is this. We're talking about not just a publicly owned utility. We are talking about a key system of critical infrastructure, hence the definition, critical infrastructure. All other systems of critical infrastructure, whether you're talking finance, whether you're talking hospital and medicine, whether you're talking general business and manufacturing, everything relies upon energy. Everything in this day and age, every other system yeah. of, I, of, of, of infrastructure has to have water, it has to have elect electricity or some other form of energy, and it has to have IT. That's the, that's the, those are the systems that make up the body. That's the nervous system and the circulatory system for the body corporate that runs our city. It's those three. They have, for the city of Lansing, two of those three, but yet they were looking at this, I think, more as an outage, and we got to fix the outage, as, than opposed to how does this impact all the other systems. And, and I say that as a long preference to the idea of, uh, that, that you just mentioned is that they therefore have to have some really good systems in place yeah. to tell them the extent of those outages. And one of the things we talk about with critical infrastructure is the concept of resiliency. The minimal form of resiliency that you can build into a system is redundancy. They didn't have redundancy. That was the, that was the mindset that I had when I asked the question, Mickey, is, you know, okay, we're, we're totally dependent on this system. Where's your backup system? What's your backup plan? And so they had to scrap it, and they came up with a manual analog, you know, we'll do work orders, pieces of paper sort of system. Once the outage management system was, was seen not to work on, I think it was said the second day of the outage. Yeah. 
which surprising that it failed so quickly. Uh, well, maybe not, considering the, the yeah. problems oh, they that's knew fair. going in. That's fair. You know, you mentioned the circulatory system, which to me is the water system. We requested a copy of the emergency plan for that. They denied it based on security concerns and all of that. Is this something your board will look into at all? Uh, you're touching on another really, uh, one of the reasons why I'm not going to make a March 31st deadline. Besides the fact we've got about 2,400 pages of material, I think, in the last request on top of the notebook we sure. got previously. So we've got three notebooks, but we've uh, full of material, so I don't know, maybe a foot high of, of paper so far, and that's not including the issue of all the emails. Um, but it is it is a matter of negotiation with them, and we are and we are having ongoing discussions about how we can look at some of this material. You know, to me, and and and, and I said perhaps in a moment of pique or frustration to them, uh, you know, I I had a, a security clearance above top secret, <laughs> so it's a little ironic that I can't look at a plan that uh, which just like Edward uh, Snowden. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Except I think that I was more thoroughly vetted than, it, <laughs> than Snowden was. But so we are having some negotiation over uh, how we need to look at certain documents. Um, and, and some of those, I think, I mean, I helped write, uh, you know, somewhat ironically, again, the, the exception to, to the Michigan FOIA statute, you know, subsection 1Y or whatever it is on, on plans. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also a piece in there that talks about you know, balancing the public interest with sure. the need to to, uh, to protect the plan or the underlying documents. So, in my mind, that means not just that a judge should be doing this balancing, but the parties, uh, you know, the the requestor and, and the agency who, uh, who has the documents ought to be able to work out some method for for uh, uh, having us have that that document that data in in a usable form. What's the reason we need it? Well, so far. Uh, we don't have documentation as to what happened between the 22nd of December and the 1st or 2nd of January. You know, we've got sort of their their testimony, uh, we, and we've as to what the process was. But with a government agency, you really should be documenting those decision points that you reach mm -hmm. on each day. Uh, certainly, you do that in the military. Certainly, you do that in a state or federal agency, where you say, "Okay, we're in the middle of an event. We're making a decision to do X." Okay, uh, maybe that's to turn off the power to a certain area for a certain period of time. You document that and you move on. And that's drilled as part of the National Incident Management System training. That's drilled into people that you document that. We haven't really seen that documentation. If it's not there because they didn't use the National Incident Management System or, or have a system of documentation, well, then you would think there would be some emails that would document when they said, okay, we've agreed that we're going to shut down this circuit for this period of time or we're going to do a conductor cut here uh, while, we, while we fix this neighborhood and, and then we'll bring it back. And we don't have any of that documentation. So we've got their statements. We've got uh, the emails, that, the 36 emails that were pu publicly sent out uh, by the spokesperson. But in terms of documenting operations during the event, we don't really have anything. Yeah. And that's what we're really trying to find w as we negotiate with them for these documents, to s sort of find something that supports their narrative there that we can point to when we write our report and says, here's what they did, here's how we know that. And what, what, what documents are you looking for? You mentioned you have 36 emails. Sure. The, the 36 emails are the ones that their spokesperson, he, he, uh, during each day of the event, he, three times a, a day he would send out an email saying, here's where we are in terms of outage updates. Uh, and, as, and they got more sophisticated by about day four or five with more detail about these are the areas in which we are going to work next, these are the areas we're currently working, which was great. But, I mean... The spokesperson didn't come up with that information. That was based on something that he was uh, he was advised by the operations. So working your way back from that barrel, uh, operations had to have made decisions as to how we're going to how we're going to determine where we are working and where we're going to work next, and how we're going to decrease the outages and how we're going to most efficiently use our resources. That's the sort of thing that should be documented somewhere, but we haven't seen it other than those uh, 36 emails from the spokesperson. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 
You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Blaskovitz, managing editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper. Let's get back to our interview with Brigadier General Michael C.H. McDaniel, the chairman of the Board of Water and Light Community Review Team. Uh, another issue that has uh, risen is uh, whether a union contract played a role in the response. What do, what do you think on that front? I, I, I don't know that we've reached any conclusions. I can tell you that we're looking at that. Um, there is there there is an issue as to uh, whether or not it would appear that the issue, if I can try and frame it, is that at some point in the past uh, there was an there was an injury to a BWL employee uh, that re- a field of, of lineman uh, as a result of a two man crew uh, and as a result of a bargaining agreement. Uh, the collective bargaining agreement uh, indicates. Um, I guess it's not in the collective bargaining agreement. The collective bargaining agreement has a, creates a safety committee. The safety committee creates a safety manual. The safety manual then, which is a part of the collective bargaining agreement for the Board of Water and Light, indicates that for primary lines you'll have, in essence, a three-man crew. Two linemen and then a, a supervisor slash, uh, I don't want to call him a spotter, but somebody who's sort of watching uh, the, the crew. Um, so, and, and that, I think, is for safety reasons. Now, my understanding is that that is not the case with the investor-owned utilities in the state of Michigan, that even on primary lines that they will use two-man crews instead of the three-man crews that BWL used. So one of the issues, therefore, is if they had split their crews differently, could they have had more crews in the field at, at a certain time? So, yeah, that is an issue that we're looking at. Don't know the answer at this point. Uh, I don't know whether, I mean, I think that's, I framed it well, but I don't know whether it would have made a difference or not. It may be that we won't be able to tell, but that's certainly something that we're looking at as to whether or not that is an issue. Should they have used uh, uh, two-man crews instead of three? Should there, in essence, be uh, sort of an emergency override to the collective bargaining agreement so that when there is a need for more crews, that they can split the crews that they have and send out two-man crews on primary lines? Well, then, too, it gets tricky also because it depends whether you're working on a live circuit or a dead circuit. If an entire region is out, it's far easier to work, and you need somewhat less skilled people to do that than you do if you're dealing with live wire. So that's another factor that, you know, complicates the, your, your view of it and what you what, right. they, what they had and what they did. Right, and I think, uh, I, I, I will say that I think Board of Water and Light addressed that in some detail uh, when, when we had our, 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 our meeting on Monday. I mean, they have three different level of spotters that are out there. I mean, right. the, the, A, the A level spotter is that individual is a journeyman electrician or better and really has the ability to, to determine that that line is, in fact, I mean, even if you think the power is out in the entire area, I think you have to make a determination on each particular line uh, and have to cut power to the line uh, before they work on it, uh, the conductor cuts issue that came up. Uh, and I think that as a result of that, I, I agree with them that, you know, that clearly takes a journeyman electric, uh, electrician as opposed to somebody who is just sort of supervising mm-hmm. to, to, you know, downed lines for a period. So uh, that, is a, that is an issue that... Um, is somewhat there's some ambiguities to it uh, and when you have ambiguities at the time of an event often you have to defer to the discretion of the crew that's out there so uh, that's why I don't know that I can give you a a specific answer on that other than to say that we're looking at that one. Uh, The uh, focus has been on uh, the general manager and other top leaders, but uh, to some extent also on the commissioners. And, uh, you know, I think we're more aware than ever there are commissioners and that we should probably have their numbers on our refrigerator. But uh, are you looking into the role of commissioners in a power outage? I I think one of the... uh uh, one of the issues that we we will consider as as part of the response part portion of our portfolio is the idea of oversight. Uh, I don't necessarily think that we can get into governance, as I said before, but the, but the degree of oversight by the, the commissioners I think is, is a uh, concern. Um, it is, you know, I, I was just looking at the charter yesterday, frankly, and, and you kind of scratch your head at the way that it's set up. 
where the Lansing City Charter itself, I think it's uh, Article 5, Chapter 2, of the Lansing City Charter specifically talks about this autonomous Board of Water, you know, Water and Light, where it's given administrative, executive, and policy-making authority over water and electricity within the city. Uh, my concern is, as I said before, is water and electricity are these vital parts of our uh, of our organism uh, that is the city or the region during during uh, any sort of event, not just an outage, but anything that might impact them and for any length of time. So I, I'm a little concerned that uh, there isn't a means for, say, the mayor as the chief executive. If you look at the city charter, it also talks about the emergency powers <coughs> of the mayor. Uh, I think the mayor has to have some emergency powers over the Board of Water and Light. I'm just throwing out there as is just an observation, not something that will be a necessarily a recommendation. But I am concerned about the way that relationship is set up. It, it seems to be uh, objective uh, outside of city politics, and, and that was the reason they set it the way they did. But I also think that there has to be a much closer relationship between the city and the Board of Water and Light during an emergency or during an event. Are you also looking at the structure, though? I'm trying to think if they had had an emergency. You know, say they had a communications committee of board members. You had three or four of them that would have talked about our emergency response or planning. I mean, are there structural things that you, could, you think you can recommend for the board organization to help them stay more in touch? I mean, but you worry about them becoming captives of the board. I mean, this is not right. a problem that's unique to municipal utilities. You see it in corporate world all the time. And uh, structures, I mean, you're looking at that? Uh, yeah, I, again, I, uh, in terms of, uh, I'm trying to make a distinction, and, and it's a little bit vague, between governance and oversight. Uh, but I... I, I uh, and the other reason I, I'm struggling with it, Mickey, is I think that because I think of communications as not an end product. It's, you know, it's a tool that needs to be used throughout any sort of event. You, you have to have the ability to assure that you've got both uh, good internal communications and external crisis communications. Uh, I think they've acknowledged at least that the external crisis communications yeah. were poor. Uh, I'm not sure that they've acknowledged that the internal communications were poor. Uh, I, I just can't tell because we don't have any documents well, that's on it. that's back to so, your point about right. what happened when. So, it's, so exactly what the recommendation on communications might be, I, I can't say at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, Lansing State Journal reported uh, last week that uh, BWL spent about $4.5 million in, in reacting to this uh, crisis. Uh, but uh, D, uh, uh, DTE and, uh, and consumers spent far more Raising the question again in my mind whether uh, uh, whether BWL is just too small uh, as a utility to cope with a crisis like that. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I don't. I mean, I've heard those discussions, and again, just my opinion off the top. I don't think they're too small. Uh, they're about uh, of the uh, of the top 100 in terms of size public utilities in the U.S. They're about 30th. So there's a couple of very large ones, like the city of Los Angeles is, you know, probably but, got... But Peter Lark, when he was here, said, you know, we, we couldn't put in the smart system uh, because uh, we couldn't afford it. Now, you know, we're going to start phasing it in. And uh, so that would indicate that they're limited by resources. Although consumers, I don't think they have it. I mean, yeah. they'd be larger. So hmm. I don't. Yeah, the 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 idea of smart metering, I think, is something that they're looking at. It is expensive. Uh, it is a cost that's going to end up being passed on to the consumer at some point, to the ratepayer at some point. Uh, but it, it's also one of those issues I think that makes sense. Again, just based upon everything that we've seen, uh, it would provide uh, a a system. Uh, in, in, in a way, it would be part. Of, it would become part of the outage management system. But you could also devise it such that it would be separate from the outage management system, so that that would it, you would have at least some redundancy. It's you know, smart metering would give you the ability to know at, at every circuit and every household if you're if you're losing power. So I I kind of think that makes sense. But I they you know they have uh, they indicated that they did have a storm fund that was set aside for this sort of thing and that the storm fund uh, was sufficient to pay for uh, the, the, all the exigencies that came up. So I, I, I don't know that I would, uh, I would say that it's too small. 
All right. I, I and finally, so. uh, we have only about a minute to go. Uh, on the issue of representation on the commission, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's the issue of governance that I really don't want to get into <laughs> because uh, it, it's not just an issue of communicating with the, the member townships and, and the city of East Lansing as well as the city of Lansing. There's absolutely no question that there has to be better internal communications in the event of any sort of emergency between uh, I mean, their communications were between BWO's control center and the city's EOC, Emergency Operations Center. There wasn't similar communications going to the rest of their customers or to the, 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 the governments that represent the rest of their customers. So that, I think, will be our focus more than looking at it from, from the governance standpoint for the and commission And they pretty itself. much acknowledge that, it seems. I mean, it's... Yeah, they, they haven't come up with a, they haven't suggested a fix to that piece other than to say we need to nest in the city EOC better. All right, but, I've got uh, to cut you off there. Any Irish blood in you? There is. All yes. right, <laughs> well, I, I know in this guy there's yeah. lots of yeah. it. So happy St. Patrick's Day to both of you and thank to you. our viewers at home. None in me, but I love corned beef and cabbage <laughs> and I got my tie. So uh, thanks, everybody, for watching. Thanks for being here, Mickey. Same to you, and we'll uh, see you next week. And that's our show for the evening. I'd like to thank all of our guests, uh, Todd Haywood, uh, Cyril Payen, State Representative Mike Shirky, and Brigadier General Michael McDaniel. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89 FM.